growing together week in and week out, and in God's kindness and his grace and his mercy, he continues to meet us. And his spirit works through his word, and he opens our minds, and he opens our hearts, and he bears fruit in us through what he's doing here. And so we'll be jumping in this morning, starting in verse 1 of chapter 25. And if you don't have a Bible, just open up your phone's browser, go on to your Bible app of choice or to your phone browser, and pull up the ESV translation of Acts chapter 25, verse 1. And so, as we pick up this morning, it's been two years of time uh, that's elapsed from where our chapter ended last week to where this one picks up this week. Two years since Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea, and in our text today, his case, his trial, is reopened as Luke recounts the events of trial number three for Paul in the book of Acts. And I, I say this because this might seem like now to us familiar territory. We've kind of heard this week after week after week now <laughs> in the book of Acts. And at this point in Acts, the, the, even the text itself, though we know this is God's word to us, it can seem repetitive. It can seem like, okay, I just got to get through this stuff and get on to the next thing. But this morning, as we hear God's word, I would encourage you that uh, God doesn't have any boring words that he speaks. He doesn't have any words he repeats for no purpose and to no end. The Spirit has this before us today on purpose. So let's apply ourselves to hear it and to receive it, full of faith that God will work through it. And so I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then would you please join along with me as we pray and ask God's Spirit to meet us and work through God's Word. So with that, beginning in verse 1, Luke writes, Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. And Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, he said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. And now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. 
I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such, such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and there be tried regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him here before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is God's word to us, the entire chapter of Acts 25. Let's pray he would help us to understand what we've just read. Oh, Father, Lord, we thank you this morning as we've already begun and continue our worship of you that you've, in your grace, you've assembled us, you've called us, and now you've spoken to us. And through the word that is preached and proclaimed, you will speak and have voice with us afresh today. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work through this word. We pray, I pray, that you would work through me to serve my friends, to build them up with the gospel, to clearly proclaim the word of truth that you've set before us. Lord, would you open our minds, would you open our hearts to hear what you would have for us to hear and be glorified as you work amongst your people. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as I mentioned, a lot of that might sound familiar. Familiar to what we've already seen in Acts, what we've seen in Paul's, uh, you know, experience. He's imprisoned, he's on trial, we have the same old charges, the same old, you know, hostility from the Jews, and Paul is going through the motions um, of his case here. And so the question is, well, what are we supposed to see that's different? <laughs> what are we supposed to see in this that's not what we've heard just the past two weeks as we've been going through this? The question I asked myself this week is, I said, Lord, what do you have for us? As I meditated upon this text, as I wrestled with it, I said, Lord, what would you seek to use this for? What do you want to accomplish in us through this? And as I began to consider Paul's experience and consider the things that were taking place in his life, something struck me about what Paul was going through here. And I want us to consider afresh what Paul's experience was like, not just reading it as facts on a page, but sort of put yourself in Paul's shoes. Consider what it must be like for him as we just read here. 
What's his situation like? Let's recap it, recap it a little bit. Paul's now on his third trial, right? He is before a new Roman governor, Festus. And I don't know about you guys, but being on trial, even if you have false charges that have been levied against you, it's probably never fun, and it's probably always anxious. I'm anxious when I get pulled over, and I know I don't think I did anything wrong, but just facing the law, facing some judgment, it's an apprehensive thing. Paul's now on his third trial, and he's appearing to stand before a new governor. Paul is still, as we heard, he's still having his life threatened by the Jewish council. They want him to come down to Jerusalem so that they can take him out in a plot against his life. He's continually now being misconstrued, right? The charges against him are false, yet he continues to stand trial and have false charges thrown at him. He's then set before King Agrippa at the end of our, our chapter here. And King Agrippa is not putting him on trial, right? He's not in his jurisdiction per se. King Agrippa is just there to hear the facts and kind of help Festus write his report to send to Caesar and say, what's going on with Paul? But King Agrippa comes in, it says, with great pomp, right? With all his, his people, his entourage, his royal you know, uh, traveling party, all the, the elites, the powerful people in the city, and they get arranged in the audience hall to hear Paul. <laughs> and Paul isn't just standing now before the governor, but he's standing before all these somebodies. And King Agrippa, really looking at it as a mere curiosity, is seeking to be entertained by Paul. In some ways, he's mocking Paul and just wants to kind of see what he has to say. And finally, we see Uh, Most importantly in this text, the dramatic plot shift. The big thing we take away is that Paul has appealed to Caesar. He's now going to Rome. And Jesus told Paul he'd get to Rome, but yet now it's been two years since that promise was made. Two years Paul has waited upon the word of God to get to Rome. And finally, in the midst of a trial in which his back's against the wall, he's given the option of going to Jerusalem where he knows he might be killed. He says, I have one card left to play. Send me to Caesar. (laughs) At this rate, going to Caesar, who is at this time the most powerful man in the world, the pagan emperor Nero. That sounds better than going to Jerusalem where they seek after my life. Yet still, it's a lesser of two evils because he's either standing before the Jewish council (laughs) that wants him dead or he's standing literally before the most powerful man in the ancient world. And if that wouldn't give you pause, if that wouldn't cause you to fear and tremble and be just a little bit apprehensive, I don't think you're really getting the story here. (laughs) So consider all these things that Paul is going through, all these things that he is being faced with. And honestly, I don't know about you, but to me, this sounds downright scary. This is a fearful position Paul is in. He's surrounded by all these things that could give him pause, all these things that could lead him to be anxious as he's put before powerful people influential people, as his life is threatened, as folks are openly hostile to him, and as he stands before governor and king and court rulers. This is an an anxious situation to be in. This is a scary situation to be in. There's much church that Paul could have been tempted to fear. And not just fear generally, right? But fear in particular from other people, right? He's interacting with all these governors and kings and influential folks, folks who might um, approve of him, who might disapprove of him, who might exonerate him, and who might condemn him. He's facing hostility from other people. People are Paul's biggest fears. People are Paul's biggest problems here in this story. 
and he's been now <clears throat> through this process of imprisonment and trial, he's been opened up to them, and he's vulnerable to whatever they might throw at him. And that sounds like a scary situation. Like Paul, though, <laughs> there's also much that we can fear, and there's much that we do fear as it relates to other people. In fact, in keeping with our series and the, the timeless traits of the church, I'd make the, ar- the argument that this fear, what the Bible calls the fear of man, a biblical phrase that you see all over the scriptures, is in fact the timeless temptation of the church. The fear of man is the timeless temptation of the church. God's people, church, they've always been tempted to worry over what other men and women could do to them, to agonize over the acceptance of others, to struggle with being controlled by what um, others uh, may give to them or may take from them. Whether that might be validation or love or recognition, attention, value, identity, we can agonize over these things. We can trip up over these things and we can look to people in our lives. Just like Paul could have seen the men and women who stood before him as those who might potentially give him validation, acceptance, and recognition, or condemnation, hostility, and harm. As the Proverbs say, the fear of man has always been a snare for God's people. This has always been a trap we could be tempted to fall into if we don't have our our hearts aligned properly, our head on straight, our mind grounded in God's truth. And it's as Christian counselor Ed Welch says, he says that we all experience the temptation to give into the fear of man and live our lives as if other people are big, meaning that we would rise and fall according to how they do or do not regard us. Tempted to believe that other people are big, he says, and that God is small. Small, that his love and his gospel would be overshadowed in us by what we believe other people can give or conversely take from us. We all have the temptation to view people as big and God as small. And I would make the argument that as Paul goes through his trial experience, as he's now headed toward Caesar, that this would be a real temptation in his heart, a real temptation he'd have to combat. He'd have to face the fear of man head on. And this fear of man, to to round it out a little bit more for us, to give a definition this morning, Again, from Welch, he says this. He says, further defining, the fear and fear of man, he says, includes being afraid of someone, yes, but it extends to holding somebody else in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping even other people, putting your trust in people, needing people. These are all aspects, realities, dimensions, of the fear of man as it expresses itself in our hearts. But all of it's summed up in this. In other words, replacing God with people. We can all fear man and replace God with other people, with their perceptions, with their opinions, with their approval or disapproval of us. And I remember a time myself where I was in the sixth grade and I had just won a spelling bee. Yes, a spelling bee. And I had won it at my school level, and it was great. It it was wonderful. It was a lot of fun. But then I was given the opportunity to go to the district level spelling bee, which was, you know, open to kids 
from all the schools in the region. And for me, winning my spelling bee was one thing. <laughs> but to go to the district level was a whole new level of spelling nerdiness and just, what, what am I doing at a district level spelling bee? And my young sixth grade self, I remember, uh, had a tearful evening in conversation with my parents <laughs> the day before the spelling bee because I didn't want to go. And I didn't want to go because if I was that guy who went to the spelling bee at the district level, I would be a nerd. <laughs> and uh, as I was speaking with uh, our deacon Christopher, he said that unfortunately my, my fears have probably been realized <laughs> in my life today. Little did I know. But at the, at the time, my young sixth grade self was afraid of being a nerd. And so I didn't want to go. I was so afraid of being labeled as such by my peers, by my classmates, and losing their approval by being just so much of a speller that I would go to this event that I was like, I, I shouldn't even go. <laughs> I'm just going to quit while I'm uh, ahead here, and I'm not going to go to the spelling bee. Such at the time was the fear of man working itself in my young heart that because I thought I might lose the approval of my friends, I didn't want to go pursue the thing that the Lord had, had given to me. I didn't want to walk in that. And the question for us this morning would be, what's your spelling bee? In what ways are you tempted, like I was then, to replace God with people? Are you struggling this morning, even now, with the fear of man in your heart? Living like people are big and God is small. And if you're saying, I'm not sure, ask yourself a few questions. Do you find yourself maybe overcommitting to things in order to please other people? Do you find yourself struggling with self-esteem and needing others to affirm you so that you can be filled up? Do you find yourself worrying that in some way and in some arena and place in life, you'll be exposed as an imposter, right? He, you're not qualified to be here. You shouldn't have this job. How can you be a husband, a father, a mother? You're going to fail. You're not qualified. You don't belong in this arena. Do you find yourself getting easily embarrassed? Do you find yourself lying? And even little white lies that you might tell just to make yourself look a little bit better. Do you find yourself tempted to lie about yourself? Are you jealous of other people? Do you maybe avoid others that you just don't want to deal with and they control your life by your avoidance of them? Or are you so caught up with trying to be successful and persuading yourself that in comparison to other people, you're doing pretty good by my comparison to that guy over there. I'm, I'm doing pretty well for myself. And maybe if none of the other ones apply to you, maybe this one will get us all. Are you too afraid to share your faith with others? Last week we talked about offense, but this week we talk about fear. Are we afraid to share the gospel because of what other people might think? Because of the rejection we might experience? Well, church, if any of those apply to you, and there's more we could consider, but if any of those are speaking to you this morning, God has something to say. He has something to say to you and something to say to us. <laughs> and so, Paul, he faced this fear, this fear of man, and he carried on following Christ's call even in the midst of so many opportunities he would have had to be afraid. The question is, how did he face this fear? 
And by extension, how do we face this fear? And this morning, we'll see that we resist the temptation to replace God with people by doing two things. One, remembering what's truly fearsome. Remembering what's truly fearsome. And number two, resting in gospel freedom. Resting in gospel freedom. And this morning, church, I really do pray that the Spirit would help us to face our fear of man, and he would equip us to resist the timeless temptation of the church. And so, let's begin resisting by remembering. And that leads us back to point one, remembering what is truly fearsome. And the the approach behind this first point is that we're going to look at this fear, right? And look at fear. And we're going to take a greater fear. And then once we face that fear, the hope is that the lesser fears will seem a little less scary to us, right? And so the question that we have to answer, what we have to diagnose then, is what's truly fearsome? What's the most fearful thing we might encounter? But we can think of it, you know, like when you're a kid and you're afraid of going on, you know, a roller coaster, you're afraid of rides, and then you finally do go on that roller coaster, then it kind of opens up a whole world to you of rides and fun that you never thought was possible. I remember when I was a little kid, I was afraid of the Matterhorn because the, the Yeti on it, you know, was scary. <laughs> but then eventually, I learned it was fun, and that he was really just an animatronic robot. <laughs> and it opened up a whole bunch of possibilities uh, for me then. When I faced that, what I thought was such a great fear, it then lessened uh, the fears of all those other rides. But <laughs> there are also more serious things that we can encounter. Expectations of, of bad news, of fearful things, and then realities, which um, fortunately um, don't turn out to be what we thought they might be. I consider a time a couple years ago where my mother-in-law was told over the phone on a Friday that she had been diagnosed with stage four skin cancer. Told that on a Friday, diagnosed with stage four skin cancer. And she got off the phone and she was overwhelmed. She took that news, she told her family, and she began to think and to prepare and really to entrust her life to the Lord and say, Lord, my life is in your hands. I can only trust in you. I can only depend upon your mercy. This is all I got. And we all faced that news. We were all taken aback by it. We all had to deal with that and face what could have been the greatest threat to her. Stage four, cancer. But then we got another call on Monday or Tuesday of the next week. And we were told that she had been given a mistaken diagnosis. It wasn't stage four, but it was level four skin cancer. And to translate it from stages to levels, level four skin cancer is equivalent to stage one. And we went, oh man, what a relief. We went from looking at the worst possible outcome and facing that great fear. And then once we received the other news of level one, it's still cancer. It's still something you don't want to deal with. It's still scary. But how much more were we freed up and enabled and prepared to deal with that one fear once we had faced the greatest fear. And we walked along in that. And so we fear, and we fear um, what other people could potentially do to us because we fear that they might have the ability to take things from us. Um, As Ed Welch says again in his um, excellent book, which I would commend to you, When People Are Big and God Is Small, we basically fear three things from people. And one is that they could shame us, that we fear people because they can expose or humiliate us. In short, they can threaten our identity. 
who we are. Second, we, we, we fear people because they can reject us. We fear them because they can reject, ridicule, and despise us. They can harm, they can injure our status. And finally, we can fear people because they threaten us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. They can harm and challenge our security. So we can look at other folks around us and consider that they are a, a challenge, right? Uh, an obstacle to our identity, to our status, and to our security. And we can live with fear that other folks might be able to take away from those things and to undermine those things. And we think of Paul and his life, right? Well, his identity um, was all the time um, up in the air. He was exposed to, to shame and humiliation, right? We think about how he's just been made a spectacle by Agrippa. He's the entertainment for the night. We consider how Paul was laughed out of Mars Hill. We consider how even in his own letters to his churches, he's critiqued, he's challenged. His apostleship is called into question by his own converts. They say, well, Paul, we have better teachers. We have more eloquent preachers. You're not that special. And in fact, when you come to us, you're not that impressive. Your letters are better than when we see you face to face. He's threatened in his identity and he's open to humiliation and to shame. Second, Paul was often exposed to rejection. Just in the past chapter that we read last week, Paul preached the gospel to Felix and Felix was alarmed because his sin was called out. He was offended and he said, Paul, no thanks. I'll hear you at a later time. <laughs> and so Paul's last preaching attempt ended in rejection, not success. But also consider someone like Paul, right? A missionary going place to place and planting churches. Every time he went to a new town, a new city, a new synagogue, he was face to face with people as an outsider. People he was trying to appeal to, people he was trying to win who were different than he was, who would be looking at him maybe suspiciously, who would be wondering what he had to say, and he had to go into room after room of people and preach to them and pursue them and try to win them to Christ, all the while knowing they could reject him. And as much as the gospel expanded from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, everywhere it was received, it was also rejected. And that was the story of Paul's ministry. I can get up in front of you all, whom I love, and still have the fear of man in my heart. How much more could Paul, going place to place and meeting folks he's never seen before, who are different, who don't know and love him, feel anxious, feel open and vulnerable to their rejection of him with his gospel ministry? And finally, and this one seems very apparent to us now, but threatening, Paul's in prison right now. He's already dodged multiple attempts on his life. He's been beaten, he's been stoned, and yet he lives on, but the threat of harm is always ever present for him. He can literally fear physical retaliation from those around him for his gospel ministry. And yet he persists, yet he moves forward in following Christ's call. And he even says that, hey, send me to Caesar, and if there's anything for which I might die, I'll die. He faces death, which I would argue is the worst thing we could probably fear, right? Death seems to be the end. The sum of all our fears would be that there's no more and that we are facing death. And so the question is, how does Paul do this? How does he walk so boldly into the face of all these fearsome things? How? And the answer I'd give to you this morning is that he knows what the scariest thing is. The scariest thing in the entire universe. Listen to, listen to this. Paul 
he can face these lesser fears because prior to these moments, he has already faced and found freedom from the most fearsome thing of all. And what is that? The wrath and rejection of God. So allow me to explain. Consider this. If other people can injure our identity, status, and security, consider how we stand before God. How we stand before the holy God, the righteous God, the God who has all authority in heaven and earth. And in light of considering all the ways in which Paul, or you, or I, could be tempted to fear man, even considering the very worst that man could do to us, which in Paul's case, and in our case, would be that death. The very worst that man could do, that death. Consider Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5. Jesus himself tells us what to fear. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear him who has authority to cast into hell. And that's sobering. That, that, that's solemn. And the logic of this argument is Maybe like when you were a kid and you were upset about something and your parents said, oh, you crying? I'll give you something to cry about, right? You want to know what's really scary? You fear, you fear those who can harm the body? Even doing the worst that men can do is nothing in comparison to the judgment of God, the wrath and rejection and disapproval of the God of the universe. And this is the bad news that's inherent in the gospel, that the worst that man could do is nothing to be compared to the wrath that we rightly deserve from God. And so Jesus, is, he stated here very plainly that ultimately the righteous wrath of God is the greatest threat to us. Nothing that any person can do, nothing that any person can take, but our status before God as sinners is the greatest problem we have to address. And if unaddressed, is the greatest thing that we should fear. Sinners who have broken God's law, who have replaced him with things that are not him, who have preferred other things to following the Lord who created them. That's everyone in this room. We come into the world replacing God with others. We, we, we come into this world naturally fearing men and not fearing God. And we stand before God rightly condemned, rightly at the mercy and under the judgment of the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. That's bad news. That is, however, if not for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For after God comes to us and in his word and through his spirit convicts us and he exposes our sin, right? He shows us that we have done wrong and we've rejected him. He has shown us that we stand condemned before his court and he shows us the wrath that we deserve. He then shows us Christ who took on our shame, who bore our guilty verdict of condemnation and who suffered God's wrath in our place. Church, imagine that you were a criminal and you're uh, before a firing squad and you are justly placed there. This is your sentence, this is your judgment and you're bound and you're waiting and you're staring down the barrel of judgment. 
and they go to fire, and it's a misfire. <laughs> it clicks. You've probably seen the movies, right? There's someone who's waiting. They know it's coming, and just at that right moment of when it's going to be, it doesn't. <laughs> the gun it misfires. It's a blank. It clicks, and the person then, you've seen it right in the movies, is flooded with relief. They go, whew, I deserve that. I knew it was coming to me, but yet it's passed me by. Well, in the movies, if not for some other criminal sort of activities and escape, and, you know, the horse then comes through and takes the guy out of the way, and they take off his cuffs, and they, they free him because they're like bandits or Robin Hood or something like that, right? In the movies, and in real life, they would just get a new gun, <laughs> reload, and then do it again. But the gospel, the gospel is better than the movies. In the gospel church, <laughs> it's not that the, the gun misfires and that we don't get what we deserve. It's that Christ, he walks himself over to the field in which we're waiting for our judgment. And he takes his place in our place before the firing squad. He stares down the barrel of God's wrath and he takes it for us. And we walk away clean. We walk away uncondemned. We walk away justified because he's borne our penalty. He's taken our shame and he's suffered the wrath of God in our place. And so what's the upshot of that for fearing man? Well, it would be this. It's that if we should fear the God who can cast into hell, but Jesus has taken on the wrath of that God, then man can give us hell, right? We can take all the hell that man can give because it's better and it's nothing to be compared to the hell we deserved from God that Christ has set us free from. His gospel sets us free from our greatest fear and therefore, all the lesser fears we can face with confidence, knowing that we've been set free from the very worst that could happen to us. And so, I said this to the kids earlier before the, the sermon started, but I think it's good for us adults too, and it bears repeating. But think about this. The truth, according to scripture, is that God's disapproval is in fact the scariest thing in the universe. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to be afraid of this if we've placed our faith in Jesus, who bore God's wrath and disapproval in our place. And so the question for us, church, is that if the scariest thing in the universe isn't scary anymore, what do we have to be afraid of? <laughs> if the scariest thing in the universe isn't scary anymore, what? do we have to be afraid of? And this is good news for us this morning who are tempted to fear man. That what is most fearsome, Christ has set us free from forever. And so what's left for us to do? We have to rest in that and rest in that forever. And this leads us to our second point. And this is that in order to combat and to resist the fear of man, we need to be resting in gospel freedom. Even as we just heard, the gospel sets us free from our greatest fear, the wrath of God. And by the sinless life on our behalf, the substitutionary death in our place, the resurrection for our righteousness, and ascension and intercession for our souls, Jesus Christ has set us free. He took, church, the worst of God's disapproval and gave us the best sort of acceptance. As Welch says again, expanding on this wonderful news, he says, the gospel is a story of God covering his naked enemies, covering their shame and sin, and then bringing them to the wedding feast, and then marrying them. Rather, 
than crushing them, marrying them rather than crushing them. He addresses our shame and he brings us in to the place of feasting and celebration. Yet, even as we can celebrate this and we can confess this to be true, even as Christians, we can still fear others and we can still believe that they can give us that only something God can. And so if this was just an open and shut case, we would stop after the first point and say, that's good, we've solved the fear of man. But even as Christians, even within our own church, looking at one another, we can be fearful. And we can act as if everyone else has on the righteous robe of Christ, but not me. Everyone else has come and they've shown up to church and they're dressed in the robe of righteousness, but mine's not on. I feel naked. I feel ashamed. I feel exposed. I don't measure up like everyone else. Even though we only got in the door because of the grace and mercy of God, we can come in and forget that and just think everyone else is dressed and ready, but not me. And the way then that the fear of man could take root in our church, root in our hearts even now, is not so much that others are going to come in, like in Paul's case, and threaten us, right? I'm hoping that we're not experiencing open ridicule and shame from one another. I hope that's not the case. That, that can happen, yes, but it's not going to be open humiliation and rejection and ridicule and shame. It's not going to be threats and harm between one of us and the other. It's not going to be fear of man that's going to be taking place along the lines of conflict and combativeness. Instead, it's going to happen more along the lines of comparison. As we look to one another and as we see things in them that make us feel like we don't measure up, as we think things of others and go, oh, they must be judging me for this. I must not measure up to their standards. What I see them doing, I'm not doing. And therefore, my status is, is threatened, is diminished. I must be less of a Christian. I don't have righteous robes. And so, windows into this for our consideration. We can feel like everyone else is dressed and ready, but not us. We can compare ourselves to one another and it could take the shape of a few of these sort of scenarios or situations. The subtle ways in which we, even as Christians in the church, who have had our greatest fear realized, or excuse me, resolved, we can still fear one another in ways like this. We can fear as we look at our children, maybe, and look at our discipleship of them. And we can see the other parents with the other child whose kid already knows all the Ten Commandments, or at least most of them, and three worship songs, and we're struggling to open the Bible. We can see another family who's doing family worship, and we're over here just trying to remember to pray before bed. And we can think that we have a lack of spiritual health, right? a lack of spiritual maturity, that our discipleship maybe, and our fruitfulness as Christians is diminished or in question because other kids have been trained more than mine. We can look at other people and see the way that they, they, they care for others, the way that they celebrate others in the church. And we can look at other people and say, oh man, they're more thoughtful than I am. They're more encouraging. They're more selfless than I am. I don't measure up to them in the way that I see them loving and serving. And we could to take an implicit judgment on ourselves from them. We can look at other people and say, they have more gifts than me. The Lord hasn't given me as much as them, so why should I bother? Why should I bother serving? What do I have to offer to the congregation? You can be fearful, maybe, of going to receive pastoral counseling. You could think, man, if I were to confess my sin, if I were to ask for help, that would put a stigma on me. And I don't want to be perceived as the one who doesn't have it all together. 
And so we can fear seeking the good things God has given to graciously grow and equip his church because of some judgment, some stigma we perceive when we all need counsel. We all need help. We all have sinful tatters beneath our righteous robes and no one qualifies to be here. We should all seek the counsel and the grace of God in as many ways as we can. Yet we can be afraid to do so because of the fear of man. Even though we have the gospel church and the righteousness that comes from Christ, we can be afraid to pray out loud. We can be afraid to pray in our small groups. We can be afraid to serve on a certain team or press into relationships with other people because we might not be good at it. We might not know how it's going to turn out. We can be inhibited in even those small and ordinary, everyday sorts of ways. We could fear to bring correction to another brother or sister. We could even be afraid to share a way that they've offended us because we're not sure how they'll take it. They might reject. They might not forgive. There might not be grace. And so, because of a fear of man, we refrain from bringing those things up. And it affects our communion. It affects our fellowship. We can lie about what shows we do and don't watch on TV, what books we do and don't read, what entertainment we do and don't enjoy to appear more spiritual to others. We can fail to let on how much we're struggling with our Bible reading. We can avoid church functions because of embarrassment with other people, because of disagreement with other people, or fears about one another. We can be kept back from the fellowship of the church. And again, I can even be fearful to preach to you right now. So much so can the fear of, God, fear of man take root in our hearts that even in the everyday life of the church, we can be seen to be rising and falling based on others' estimations. And that could be whether or not someone even says anything. We could feel judged without a word of judgment being preached toward us because of the temptation we experience, because of the way Satan works in our hearts and the way that we can look to ourselves in our tattered, sinful garment and not the righteous robe of Christ that he's placed upon us. And so I'm going long because I've had a lot to say on this. <laughs> but let me share with you a scripture that, that, that will help us face this fear, that will help us to rest in gospel freedom, that will help us to rest not in what we might think or say or do or not in what anyone else might think or say or do, but in what God has done and what God will do. It brings to mind 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And this is a passage that I encourage you to go read this week and meditate upon. But in the life of, of Paul, he's responding to judgment and attack and critique that he's received from members of the Corinthian congregation. His apostolic ministry and calling have been called into question. And some members of the church just aren't impressed with him. <laughs> they are openly, others in the church, are preferring other pastors, right? There's some of, of Peter, some of Apollos, some of Christ, and Paul, you're, you're nothing special. They're openly aligning. They're openly dividing. They're making factions in the church, <laughs> championing, championing other pastors. And here, in the midst of all this, with his ministry and his intentions and his faithfulness in their crosshairs and under, under scrutiny, Paul has a prime opportunity, wouldn't you say, to be crushed, <laughs> to become defensive and to seek validation from these other people, to try to win them back, to try to plead his case. Look how he responds instead. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. 
But, listen to this, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And in this case, whereas in the first point, the judgment of the Lord might be a fearful thing. Through the gospel, the judgment of the Lord upon us, who were once ungodly sinners, is justified. Amen? Is innocent, is qualified and dressed in the righteous robes of Christ, accepted and part of God's family. My son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. Paul says, I look to you, Corinthians. I even look to myself. And these verdicts, these opinions, I just can't care about them because it's God who judges me. And God alone can judge me. And the good news is that God alone gives me a verdict of righteous. God alone gives me a verdict of justified, of validated, of accepted and qualified to be walking in the calling he's given me, to be receiving the grace that he has for me. And if God has said it, no one can overturn it. And so he walks in freedom because he's applying the gospel to himself. He knows that not even himself nor any other human can add to or detract from this word. Just as we can't add anything to our salvation, right? We can't add works to God's grace. So other people can't add something to our our justification and thereby diminish it or take it away. It's a work of God through and through. God judges and God justifies. And so for us then, who are resting in gospel freedom, what's left for us to do then is to look at other people not as objects of fear, but as objects of love. And receiving the love of Christ in the gospel, being justified freely by his grace, to look to others and not fear what they might take from us, to look to others and not fear what they might do to us, but look to others as those that God could love. (laughs) And be freed up in love, not to fear, but to be overflowing with what God has already begun to work in us, in our hearts. And so, though it might seem scary and other people might seem fearful, it might seem too vulnerable or too hard to draw near to others, just consider as we go that Jesus, he drew near to us and he stepped into all of our sin, all of our shame, and into that open exposure, right, of seeing us just as we were and he loved us anyway so that we then could be empowered by his love and overflowing with that love, draw close to others not out of fear, but in love. So church, let's be filled with the love of God and not the fear of man. Let's pray. Oh Lord, (laughs) we fear you. We fear you because you are judge and your judgment is the scariest thing there is, but we also fear you and with the wonderful sort of fear and trembling we consider that you are not just our judge, but our justifier. And just, Lord, as we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we are fearfully and wonderfully remade. Oh, we look at you and your salvation, and we rejoice and we tremble, and we thank you that you set us free from fear through the proper fear of you. And Lord, that as we 
look to you and your great salvation and your love which flows out to us in the gospel applied by the spirit to our hearts. We're then freed up to walk in love toward others, looking at others not as objects of fear, but as those whom you might love through us. Lord, we thank you for your perfect love, which casts out all our fear. Be glorified in us as we celebrate your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.